standard issue for all women. Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Mickey here, and before I tell you about my incredible guest, and trust me, she is mighty, I'm going to urge you to listen to last week's Sunday Chops, if you haven't already, in which Hannah caught up with the Mary Beard. Well, Mary's not fussed about being called Professor or Dame, so I've decided her title is The, possibly in capital letters. Let's make it happen. Anyway, they're chatting transfers of power, how society deals with the rabbit's ears losers, and the evolution of language, among many other things. It is a tremendous and very smart listen. Back to this here, Chops, which is my full interview with political commentator, indefatigable activist, and all-round top woman, Dr. Shola Moss Shogbamimu. Shola's written a book, This Is Why I Resist, and it is a powerful and passionate polemic against structural racism. She tells me why she had to write it, and we talk the problem of performative allyship, the insidiousness of structural racism, and why the angry black woman trope is so pernicious. I am joined on the Zoom by political commentator, activist, author of new book, This Is Why I Resist, and top-class Piers Morgan agitator, Dr Shola Moss Shogbamimu. Shola, hello. Hello, hello. I had to laugh at the Piers Morgan agitator bit. <laughs> that, that is a new one. Well, seriously, first of all, a tip of the hat for handing Piers Morgan his arse on a plate. I mean, getting a word in edgeways is hard enough, but you did an incredible job. Well, you know, Piers... Engaging with peers, you have to be ready to have, you know, the discussion and be able to share your point of view. And and sometimes he listens and sometimes he doesn't. So, c'est la vie. <laughs> Do you like that kind of rigorous debate? Is that something that, that gets your adrenaline flowing? Let me put it this way. My passion gets my adrenaline going and I don't run away from having, a, you know, debates in whatever form they may be, especially if I'm passionate about the subject in question. And if what the other person is saying is not making sense, I'm going to tell them what they're saying is not making sense because I, I don't have time to sugarcoat words. It just life is too short for that nonsense. OK, well, I'm looking forward to you uh, telling me a bit later on. <laughs> <laughs> it's been uh, it's been quite the 12 months, even with events that's happened in the past couple of weeks. So I've got to start by asking, how are you? I would say I am grown, grown meaning oh my God, the levels of growth that I've personally had to do in the past 12 months as well. The growth, I mean, in terms of Mm self-care, in terms of understanding why, um, because a lot of the issues I talk about, they're not new to me, but there's something that we experience as a society that's white, black, and brown, and experience as black people that's intensified the frustration, the hurt, and the pain. And that has required someone like me being able to sometimes take a step back and try to understand why am I feeling a whole lot more pain about this point? What has happened? What is it about? Maybe there's something in my subconscious that I've not really dealt with before Mm -hmm. that requires me to just take a step back because if I say something, all you're going to hear is me screaming. You're not going to hear my (laughs) message. You know what I mean? And sometimes we need to do that. And for me, I've also learned self-care in a way that I've never done before. I mean, look, I always find that I'm I'm moving forward to tomorrow. Once I've done what I need to achieve for today, I'm like, okay, so tomorrow. And now I've learned so much more in the past couple of years to be more present. So enjoy the present as well. So there's still a whole lot more growth going on. And I'm sure many people feel the same. Mm-hmm. 
Time-wise, your book, This Is Why I Resist, Don't Define My Black Identity, it covers the pandemic, it covers George Floyd's killing by a white police officer and beyond there. But this book, which I've got to tell the listeners is an eloquent, passionate polemic against structural racism, has clearly been bubbling inside you for a long time. That's right. How did This Is Why I Resist come about? So This Is Why I Resist is, like you said, it's something I've been wanting to write about. But the perfect timing came last year, Mm -hmm. not just because of what was going on. It just seemed as though all of the elements worked together. And that was just when it was it was perfect to be able to gather all of these things that I didn't even realize was inside and talk about them. And for me, I think one of the triggers, if I'm perfectly honest, is was the hard conversations, the ongoing conversations and the fact that we keep having to repeat ourselves. I mean, I mean, we always say it's exhausting, but it is beyond exhausting now. It it almost feels as though even though you're saying the same thing that somebody 10 years ago said, somebody 100 years ago said, generationally, our society has not progressed, not with my white siblings, not with majority of my white siblings. And I'm like, why is that? Right. And what I try to do in this book is is basically highlight the fact that I know it's a constant battle to talk about race, racism and race inclusion. But this is why it's a constant battle. This is why talking about these issues cause pain to some people. Why some people reject the notion of white supremacy, white privilege and systemic racism because it's it's actually affecting their way of life. And because their way of life is predicated on denying an equal life and liberty to black people and ethnic minorities, it's shaking them. It's shaking the, the very foundation of who they are. They're not ready to give up whatever power that they get from this from a systemically racist society. That's the problem. I also talk about racial gatekeepers. Yes. And racial gatekeepers are black or ethnic minorities who enable systemic racism, who feed off it because of their proximity, their own benefits, the benefits they get from saying the yes sir, yes sir, (laughs) or yes sir, yes ma'am. And that these um, racial gatekeepers exist not just in politics, they're not just politicians, they're your work colleagues. They're those people, and I try to explain what racial gatekeeping is, and racial gatekeeping is not about having a difference of opinion, but it's using your influence and opinion to actually pull up the ladder behind you, mm-hmm. to actually further the dehumanization of black people and ethnic minorities. And one of the things that I take the pain to identify here is, look, I didn't create the term white people, black people. I was only born just over 40 years ago. And when I was born, these terms were already there. Yeah. But you can't talk about race, racism, and race inclusion without using the colloquial terms that are used to actually divide, cause division. This is why I refer to white people, black people, brown people. Not because I believe in the social construct of race. I think there's only one race. That's the human race. But it is because of the labeling of different race that has engineered the um, the systemic oppression of a group of people because they're perceived to be inferior. Of course, I make the point that there's jack or superior about being white. There's nothing <laughs> superior nope. about being white. Nothing. 
So what I do in the book as well is to draw from the ongoing conversations, especially online, in the headlines, in our politics today. So I take the time, you know, as you've read, to address this issue of white privilege, deconstruct it, to challenge the notion of reverse racism. I, I honestly, I laugh when some white people, not white people, some white people go, oh, that black person is being racist to me. I'm like, do you know what racism is? <laughs> Have you any idea what you're talking about? I'm like, okay, I've tried to explain it here and why reverse racism does not exist. So I'm not just saying, oh, reverse racism doesn't exist. I'm saying, this is why. Yeah. And also to point out what everyday racism looks like. I mean, look at Amy Cooper, right? Who called the police on the African-American Central Park. Now, so many white people I know are like, no, she didn't do that. That's so wrong. That's so racist. And me and other black friends are like, I'm sorry, you're surprised? Mm. I mean, we are not surprised. I did not even need to see the video. You know, Christian Cooper, if I knew him, he could have called me on the phone and I would have pictured it verbatim. Yeah. Because this is what we see. We see black people going about their everyday business, being policed by white people going, I'm sorry, do you live in that house? I'm sorry, is there something about me that suggests I shouldn't live in this house or I shouldn't walk on the street? These are the kind of things that people experience every day. And let's not forget systemic racism plays in our politics today. Oh, gotcha. Identity politics, which is why I took the time to deconstruct what white identity politics is. Again, I, I think it's so important for people to understand that when we talk about race, racism and race inclusion, this is not about pointing fingers at all white people. No, we're talking about systemic racism is a legacy from slavery. Okay. It's a legacy from colonizing many African, um, Asian countries and the like. And it has continued to today. I do not say to a white person, you are to blame. You know, I don't look at you and go, oh my God. Well, you are to blame that all those things happened 400 years ago. No, that's not what this is about. Mm -hmm. The point is, it's still happening today. The legacy is happening today. But the reason it is happening is because the system and many white people benefit from a system that carries on its legacy. So what I'm saying to my white siblings is, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to end this. It is not just about black people or you go do something about it. You, uh, we will overcome. It's, it's there. <laughs> oh, we, we will overcome. No doubt about it. But my question is, when will you progress? That's it. I love the way that you have phrased that, that instead of when are black people going to have their day? When are they going to overcome it? It's like, okay, white people, when are you going to progress? And actually, I found your title really, really interesting. So I'm going to go with the tagline first, which is don't define my black identity. And all of us have been sold a, a lie for centuries about what black identity is. Say it again, my sister. Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> and so everything is predicated on this lie. They're still being sold to us, right? Correct. And because profit is being made from the continual commoditization, marginalization, dehumanization, and misrepresentation of the black identity. Look, let me be clear. My mother would hate for me to refer to myself as a black person or refer to you as a white woman. As far as she's concerned, she spent good money on my education for me not to be referring to people as black or white. Because she's like, do you, do you look black? 
eh, this is me putting the Nigerian uh, inflection. You are more brown than black, so why in God's name are you referring to people by the color of their skin? Okay. But the point is, the point is, though, there's no single monolith of who black people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you know how many countries are in the continent of Africa? Oh, I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. Exactly. <laughs> Do you know how many ethnicities are in the continent of Africa? Because I'll give you an example. In Nigeria alone, there are about 250 to 400 ethnicities. Mm-hmm. So yes, there is no one singular identity for black people. Absolutely not. But hey, we're lumped together as black people. We're seen in terms of, or perceived negatively in terms of how we speak, what we say, our, our you know, ethnic hairstyles, our names, all of these things. Why? Why? It's all steeped in white supremacy. And white supremacy births all these forms of um, negative stereotypes, tropes used against black people in the workplace, at school, in different areas, on the high street, just living your everyday life. So yes, the black identity that's been sold in many Western nations, Mm -hmm. especially those who have a history of slave trade is a lie and it, it, it primarily it is a lie because they knew they were dealing with human beings but they needed to dehumanize us as savage as uneducated as you know not knowing what is best for them so that they can exploit our mineral resources they can use our human resources for their own profit exactly that so let's talk about the the main title this is why i resist because the book is very much about how we all need to resist. So the direct opposite of resistance is cooperation, but it obviously goes much, much deeper than that. Silence is compliance. We hear that all the time and it's correct. And after the surge of support that happened in the summer of 2020 last year, do you think too many people have gone back to sitting on their hands? Heck yes. They did not even let the ink dry before they got the... (laughs) You know, as soon as... It was not trending. All those, you know, black squares started coming off. The performative allyship uh-huh. is just as dangerous as far as I'm concerned. If you as the white ally say, you know, if you put out there in the public that or you support Black Lives Matter or, you you know, you support issues that pertain to eradicating racial and social injustice, but your actions say different that you are just as dangerous as those who actively seek to oppress black people. Mm-hmm. You see, Black Lives Matter to me is a movement. The movement is the ethos that led to the abolition of slavery. The movement of Black Lives Matter is the ethos that pushed against the colonization of African nations and ended that. The ethos of Black Lives Matter is what ended apartheid in South Africa. The ethos of Black Lives Matter is what, you know, triggered and motivated the civil rights movement in America and here in the United Kingdom. That is what Black Lives Matter is about. Mm -hmm. That we matter. All lives cannot matter if Black lives don't matter. Simple. Take that to the bank and cash it. But people need to understand that when it comes to racial injustice, social injustice, this is not a hotel that you can check in and check out of, okay? Because we are in it 365 days, 24-7, period. So you can't go, oh my God, this is so much work, by day seven and go, I just need to go to the spa. Spa who? If you're going to that spa, don't come back because you're part of the problem 
not the solution. And let's not, I mean, let's not get this wrong, because I talk about this in the book, that we have had white siblings. History has shown us that we've had white siblings who have fought mm -hmm. the good fight to end racial and social injustice. Some of them have even lost their lives. But the reality is that they were the lone voices. So because they were the lone voices, there were not enough of their voices to make the kind of change that they were, you know, the change that we all were seeking, which is why the change or the, 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 the is incremental. That's what, that is what I'm trying to say. If you think about it, things like the equalities law only came about in the 60s. I know. 60s, that was yesterday. Mm -hmm. 60s was yesterday. It's not 100 years ago. So look at how change is coming incrementally. And the reason for that is because of systemic racism. We need to keep fighting it. It goes back to activism as well. And I've seen you on TV a lot. And it seems that you're constantly called upon to confirm, again, why racism is bad and deep-rooted. Which, I mean, it, it looks exhausting, Shola. But such is the life of an activist. And it feels like you didn't have a choice to be an activist. Oh, no, I don't feel I had a choice. I Look, I, I, I actually think I was probably born out of my mother screaming about God knows what. <laughs> this is why I say, look, what triggers me into action, which is what activism is, is, is something that moves me. I cannot stand injustice in any form. And I don't need to experience it. It's bad enough that somebody else is experiencing it. Do you see? Yeah. And what I find among some in, in different movements is they try to they try to trivialize other people's experiences simply because they've not experienced it. Now, I don't need to experience police brutality for me to, oh my God, get out there and use everything that I am to stand against it. I don't need to experience anti-Semitism or homophobia for me to say, oh my God, hell no. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. People need to understand that resistance should be about standing up for others. Because you see, I strongly believe that if I stand up for you, then you will stand up for me. Yeah. Do you see some, you know, because sometimes when we're experiencing things, whatever it is might, might almost make you not as loud or as vocal as you would normally be. But when people are around you, when you have a community of supporters, that makes you stronger. So I believe that then, you know, karma, when things t turn around, there will be people there for you if you're there for them. Absolutely. And obviously, standard issue, we talk about women's rights all the time. If women lift each other up, we get further. And that is across the board for humanity, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, and to me, it's such common sense. But as you know, my sister, common sense is not common okay so i am way past expecting people to do things the way i you know because i think well actually don't we all see it this way and this is one of the things i talk about in the book i literally challenge my white readers i'm saying to them if you think racism is not a problem then you have a case to answer mm -hmm. if you think racism is not your problem then you have a case to answer if you think that racism and white supremacy is sustainable you have a case to answer. Because, you see, when people look at things in terms of, well, I'm not the one suffering, actually you are suffering because everything that you think you are 
you think you are decent, you think you've got integrity, is being eroded by your complacency, complicity, or active enabling of white supremacy. So no, you're not a decent, nice person. If you're going to, you know, look the other way, or if you're going to enable the very thing that you know that you would not stand, you tell me how many white people you can go about. You go ask them and go, would you like to change places with a black person? No. The answer would be no. No. Hell no. Because however rich, famous, or highly skilled the black person is, white folks or white people know that the black skin, there's such stigma against our skin that they don't want to experience it for one day. It's a tiny line amid a whole plethora of horror that you're describing to do with kids and hairstyles. And it's the line about the little boy who goes home and he just says, I don't want to be black anymore. Can you imagine that? It's it's so horrible. And I think that's where white privilege, that was, that was when it kind of the light bulb went on for me, is everything else you can you can change or you can hide but you can't do that with the color of your skin no you can't i I still remember my youngest she's the one that just came in to interrupt my podcast but (laughs) i i still remember my youngest when she was about four or five just asking me just out of the blue she said she was watching tv and just an advert and she said mommy aren't these toys for me too i'm like of course they are then she said well why don't they have any children looking that look like me in there it never occurred to me that at that age, her mind would process what she was seeing in such a way. And I wasn't having conversations with her at four or five about, you know, as, you know, as serious things, you know, it, more in-depth things about structural racism. I wasn't having that conversation. So it took me aback mm-hmm. that she had processed that and she asked the question thinking, oh, maybe it's not for me. Because all she could see were white kids playing with these dolls and because she sees them all the time that is what made her ask the question and that i I won't lie that hurt that actually hurts it's heartbreaking it is yeah it is i don't believe people are born racist and i don't believe people are born to be oppressed by racism using black kids as an example they don't know what racism is until they experience it yeah as far as children are concerned everybody's a friend it's heal the world, make it a better place. Everything is, you know, full of color. They're having a great time. They hug and they love until somebody in their lives or something exposes them to the evil of racism. So when a black child comes home and goes, mommy, what's the N word? That's because somebody has used that word yeah. in their presence, either to them or to somebody close to them or referring to people like them with the n-word and imagine for many many black parents having to then sit their child at four or five six or seven hoping that they don't have to have this conversation until later on having to sit them down and go okay this is what the n-word means but you see it doesn't stop there telling them what the n-word means doesn't stop there the parent now has to go into more about where the n-word originates from why the n-word exists and what the child needs to do going forward. And then the parent then has to reassure their child, you are more than any word used against you. And and build that child up to protect their child from any such, you know, further experiences. That's a lot of hard work. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, before breakfast, probably. 
Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mix had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column. So this has worked out rather well. So, Shola, I know this is a, a huge question and obviously you've written a book about it, but what does it mean and what does it take to dismantle structural racism? I would say it takes a whole lot of you to do that. And I, I'm going to look at this from, you know, um, two perspectives. So, as somebody who is actively pushing for anti-racism and to eradicate it, there's a lot that it takes to engage in constant battles, verbal battles, should I say, yeah. about ending racism. And then having to come up against those structural systems, you're a lone voice because those who run the structural systems or benefit from the structural systems want to keep the power. So it's something that is going to take a whole lot of energy, a whole lot of continual learning, a whole lot of, um, you know, being able to work collectively, but at the same time, being able to stand on your own individually. Because you see, if nobody else is around you, you should still be able to stand up and say, hell no, to this racist thing as a black person or ethnic minority. Then, I mean, if you look at it from, say, those who are white allies, who see this thing as problematic, who see the evil of systemic racism. Some of them are rejected by their own people as not, you know, no one. So it, it's painful on both sides for all those who want to end and eradicate racial and social injustice. It is so because we're fighting a powerful structure, a powerful yeah. structure that is not just from the top of government, but all the way down to grassroots, right? It is why when I give the example of Amy Cooper, that the likes of Amy Cooper can do what they do because it, there's power in complaining about black people and referring to them as black. Because the first thing the police or authorities will hear is black. Do you yeah. see? Yeah, yeah. And ordinary people, those those ordinary people who are racist, not all people, know that and they utilize that. When we fight racism, you're fighting it on all fronts. It takes a whole lot, especially when you deal with abuse online and offline. I mean, I've had to, just a few days ago, I had to um, report a threat to my person that somebody made online. This guy retweeted my, my tweet saying he would like to kick me in the face. I'm like, okay, you just picked the wrong black person. To mess with <laughs> yeah, right. All right. I mean, I get a lot of racist abuse, but he, I went, you can disagree with what I have to say, but you have absolutely no right to talk about hitting me, kicking me in the face, nothing of sorts. So I reported him to the police. And it's important that we as anti-racist activists understand that we have the right, we have the right to speak out against physical, verbal intimidation and threats, and that we must do so. Has anything been done about it? Yeah, the police have taken the details and they are investigating it. Good. There was one that I, I, I reported earlier. They looked into it. They called me. 
all of this something going on on the I don't know if you've heard of the 4chan platform yes yes Sometimes. and somebody you know brought my name in there saying that oh I am um, I'm an N person who who is causing you know division and just gaining traction that how dare she who is she oh she claims she has a doctorate degree well can somebody find out if she really has a doctor can you imagine can you believe that it's so it's it, it's so endless just the bullshit the whataboutery the questioning it is knackering and i think when we're talking about being anti-racist and anti-racist activism it, there's a big difference between something feeling right which it should absolutely feel and something feeling comfortable and i think if you're comfortable yeah. you're not doing it right preach my sister that's it right there there is nothing comfortable about addressing the issues of race racism and race inclusion i have no qualms disabusing people of any such expectation because i'm like i'm not comfortable so why in god's name should you be comfortable what the heck are you talking about and this expectation, let's just, let's just address this elephant in the room. There's always this expectation that, well, if you're going to talk about it, I think it's important that you talk about it in a calm way. Who says I'm not calm? I'm calm. But because you're judging my body language by your white-centric views, mm-hmm. thinking I should calmly talk to you in your view about how your enablement and complacency in white supremacy denies black people an equal value of life, that I'm supposed to do that in a way that makes you feel comfortable. Forget you. <laughs> or that I, I, I meant to, as though it is my job to unlearn for you everything that you have learned. That's your job, not mine. And as though, oh, hold up a second, you know, like you, you, you deal with children um, with cereal or food. Okay, here's the food on the spoon. Just open up, open up. Just, you know, like, like, Chunk, you know, bites, chunk bites, giving chunk bites of truth as and when they feel comfortable. What rubbish is that? That's nonsense. I mean, people who are experiencing intersecting inequalities, living in toxic environments, are not being oppressed in a, you know, bite-sized way. They're not being oppressed in a, okay, we'll let you go um, on Monday. We'll come back on Friday to oppress you. doesn't work that way. <laughs> Work discrimination, school discrimination, divisive political rhetoric does not give you a day off. Uh-huh. People are looking to get comfortable. Don't come to me because I will make you very uncomfortable. The reason a person will be uncomfortable about race, racism, and race inclusion is not my fault, it's not my responsibility. The reason they'll be uncomfortable is because they can't stand the truth coming out of my mouth. Uh-huh. And they can't stand the fact that I do not give a flying flamingo, how they feel about it. That's very polite. Exactly. So I always say to people, find a safe person to have a conversation with. If you're white and you have black or brown friends, there must be amongst your circle of friends, someone you can clear your cobwebs with. Because I get it. Sometimes we say things or we're thinking things, but we're still thinking through them. We're still processing them. So mm-hmm. we, we don't know exactly where we sit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes reading a book helps, but talking about it is more helpful. So if you want to have a real conversation, have a real conversation with somebody who knows you, somebody who's not going to judge you, somebody who's, who's going to be able to say, are you out of your mind crazy? If you think that it's going to, but they'll still love you at the end of it. Uh-huh. I think that is what real friendship should be about. So find that safe person. Find that safe person who can help educate you, who you can argue with safely, 
right? And you're not worried about, oh, they're not being nice to me. And they don't have to worry about being nice to you because you're already friends. Yeah. But we all need to have people that we can have real conversations with, people we can go to and go, you know what? I saw this picture on TV or this headline or Nigel Farage just said this. And I'm kind of inclined to agree because, and let them challenge you. Yeah. Let them challenge you. But if you don't feel free, because I don't want people walking on eggshells. I do want you to behave yourself. You better <laughs> behave yourself around me. Behave yourself on issues that really negatively impact the quality of life and choice of other people. But in order for you not to walk on eggshells, it means you have to be able to address your own prejudices. You have to be open to challenge. And if you're afraid of being challenged publicly, then please, by all means, be challenged privately with those who know you well. Those who you know will have a difference of opinion to you, you know? It's realising it's not it's not a one-sit test. It's not like you take the test and you pass it. This is continuous. We're constantly Absolutely. learning. All of Absolutely. us are works in progress. So, you know, right. being open to going, oh, well, I thought that and I thought that was right, but maybe now I need to reevaluate. Correct. I've got to say, Shola, that and this is without taking away from the fact that it's dangerous and horrible, but the angry black woman trope, I think, is... I think it's laughable because... Women are fucking angry with every right to be. You intersect that with being black. And I'm like, yeah, of course they're angry. Like, they're, yeah, validly angry. So many of the things that you discuss in This Is Why I Resist and that you discuss when I've seen you on television and indeed chatting to me, they they go hand in hand with the subjugation of women. They're very recognisable. Absolutely. One of the reasons why it is so important to talk about the trope is because of the negative impact of the trope, right? Mm-hmm. So that has denied some black women jobs. Yeah. It has silenced some black women in their workplace, in their schools, either because they don't want to be stigmatized by this trope, or two, um, those who do have the power use it to uh, marginalize them. That's the problem. Because mm-hmm. I, I would want people to be able to accept me as I am. So the fact that I disagree with you and I have a difference of opinion to you, and yes, when I speak, I'm passionate, it doesn't mean you're being bullied. It doesn't mean I'm threatening you. I'm giving you a piece of my mind and I'm telling you I don't agree with you, period. That's it. And you know what? This is how I came out of my mother talking. That's right. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not going to now say that. Well, well, Mickey, well, you see, you have to understand that in engaging with you, I don't talk that way. If I spoke that way, even my husband and my children would be very worried. They would send me to a mental home. Like, what's happened to her? You know, and everybody is different. And sometimes people think that women, they have to act in a certain way. Now, yes, a lot of us women, um, you know, from different backgrounds, different class, we, we are treated differently by the patriarchy and called emotional when you know we have an opinion to give yeah we are we are labeled with all these things in order to hold us back but within that marginalized group are women like black women and ethnic minority women who are experiencing double yeah intersecting inequalities so that the impact for them is so much worse than say their white sisters and even when you talk about black women and brown women and you try to break it down then the issue of colorism comes in. Yeah, where yeah. We know that, we all know that the closer, the lighter a black or brown person is, they are given this uh, preference, right? They're given a preference to their darker skinned 
um, uh, you know, women. Yeah. Again, that is more intersecting inequality. There's just so much going on. And we did not create the term angry black woman trope. There's a reason it's called angry black woman trope because it is against black women. It is about black women and it's to dehumanize black women. It doesn't take away from the fact that other women from different ethnicities might, you know, might experience similar, but the impact is not the same. There are different levels of the impact. Yeah. Shola, I could talk to you all day and I stand in awe of the fact that you didn't just write, this is bullshit a hundred million times for your book, right? (laughs) This is Why I Resist is published on Thursday, the 21st of January by Headline and is available in all good bookshops. Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Oh, please do follow me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on, oh, now I'm on TikTok, finally figured out what to do with it. Hang on, um, you're a woman in your 40s. What are you doing on TikTok? I know, I know. <laughs> but I actually, now I use, um, I do learn on TikTok. So I use it to talk about many of these issues in 60 seconds. So, you know, hopefully it's an opportunity to educate and to, to engage or to drive that conversation mm-hmm. that we need to drive in order to be able to, um, you know, get change. And of course, you can find out more about me on my website, which is drshola.com. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for chatting to me and best of luck with the book. Thank you. Standard Issue for All Women.